would take a Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 11 this morning. Acts chapter 11. Last Sunday we began our month-long emphasis on, on global missions and we covered a lot of ground, all of chapters 10 and, and uh, half of 11. Uh, Acts, as a book, has entered its third major shift Outwards, So the gospel is spreading in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria. And now with Cornelius, it is going to the end of the earth. Uh, and basically what we saw last week was that, God, that the God we worship is a missionary God. Uh, he pursues and saves people from, from all nations. Now I told you last Sunday that we would spend uh, more time applying what we learned from the text last week. Uh, And so today is part two of last week's message, and here's the plan. I'm going to read chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 18, which gives us a nice, succinct summary of what happened with Peter and Cornelius and what it means, and then we're going to, I'm going to summarize the four observations we made uh, last week, and then then we're going to look at four ways this uh, applies uh, in terms of global missions and what this means for, for our church body. So uh, before I read, why don't I begin with a a short word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we would be attentive to it now as it's read, uh, and that you would use it to sanctify us and make us more like Christ. And we pray that through our body, you would, in fact, reach the nations. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so let's begin in chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean, has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we uh, were, were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us 
when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So what did we see God reveal uh, in chapters 10 to 11? We made, we made four observations from, from the text. We saw first that God is a God who pursues a people from all nations. He commands angels. He opens heaven. He kills Peter's prejudice. He does everything necessary to save this Italian named Cornelius. And in doing so, God reveals that He shows no partiality. He he shows no favoritism based on ethnicity. His grace is for all peoples. We then looked at the gospel that saves people from all nations. What Peter preaches in uh, chapter 10, verses 36 to 38. Uh, He preaches, he says, the good news of peace. Sin separates people from God. Sin merits punishment, but Peter brings the good news of peace. God has done for man what man can't do for himself. It's through Jesus' life and His death and His resurrection and His return that God is saving people and He's doing so from all nations. Jesus takes away the penalty that our sins deserved and anybody from anywhere who believes this historically true message will have their sins forgiven. Third, we saw the grace God gives believers from all nations. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, we see the great promise to Abraham that God was going to bless all nations through Abraham's seed and, and through Jesus Christ, who is the true offspring of Abraham. We see all of God's blessings, forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, Uh, inclusion into His people, eternal life, all of them are are coming to the Gentiles in this this moment. And then finally, we saw the ultimate goal of it all, the glory God receives for saving people from all nations. It all ends on this note in in verse 18, uh, we just read it a second ago, that when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God's goal in saving the nations is spreading joy in His glory. That's the message of chapters 10 to 11 in a nutshell. And Having summarized it, I want, us, I want us to look at a few ways this theology applies to us in terms of global missions. You know, we might have a robust theology of missions, but we often need help teasing it out. What does this look like from day to day, especially when when many of us are called to stay and support and send? So it's not a matter of who's called to missions. It's, uh, It's a matter of how each of us are called to missions. Being excited about missions doesn't make you a missionary. It makes you a Christian. Okay, So, what is our role? How does such theology teach us to live? Well, first things first, this theology teaches us about our motivation for global missions. Our motivation. 
What is it that drives your passion? Uh, What keeps you going? What compels you to make disciples of all nations? I could give you statistics on lostness among the Afar in Eritrea and the Dasari in India and the Hamer Bana in Sudan. I could describe the demographics of regions. I'll do some of that later for Fort Worth. I could list all of the mounting needs of of lost peoples and tell stories of the greatest missionary sacrifices. And each of those would have their, their place. But the ultimate motivation for missions is enjoying the grace and the glory of God. The whole point of moving Cornelius and sanctifying Peter and these Gentiles hearing the gospel was for them to enjoy God's grace. What happens in chapter 10, verse 46? The Spirit falls and it says the Gentiles, they extol God. They speak highly of Him. That's what that means, extol Him. They speak highly of Him. They worship Him. They they enjoy the grace they received. And that's the pattern if you read the book of Acts, that the gospel confronts people in their sin, it overcomes their sin, and those who believe rejoice in the grace they've received. Which is exactly what Romans 15 tells us is the whole point of God sending Jesus into the world that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So when you, when you receive a gift, that you, something you truly enjoy, don't you want to share it with others? You, you, you want them to enjoy what you enjoyed. In that gift, maybe you go out and and buy them one so they can experience the same joy. The same is true with God's grace, except there's no greater gift to offer people. There's nothing that satisfies our deepest longings and, and meets our greatest need for forgiveness. Missions grows out of joy in God's grace and the desire for others to experience it with us. The church here, we also see, celebrates God's glory. Again, chapter 11, verse 18 says, They glorified God. So the giver gets the glory. God didn't owe the nations anything except judgment, but in His love, He lavishes grace on them freely. Salvation by grace alone means the glory belongs to God alone. The church glorifies God. So he, he spreads His grace for worldwide worship. We might glorify Him. And this is our motivation, that God receive glory for spreading joy in His grace and, and glory among all peoples. So the formative question we need to take home is this, what is motivating you as, as a Christian? Uh, why do you do what you do as a believer? What, are you in, what, what moves you to be involved? Is it the enjoyment of God's grace? And, and is it the celebration of His, His glory among all peoples? If there's no desire to spread news of God's grace, 
we have to ask whether we've truly experienced it ourselves. Or whether we've lost sight of it over time and how sweet it really is. Those who experience God's grace can't help but spread His grace and glory to others. Missions grows out of delight in God's grace and glory. So I want us as a church, we've got to start there. We've got to start there. We'll get to mission strategy in a minute, but don't start with strategy. Start with rejoicing that you've received grace. You didn't deserve it, but you received it. Start with worshiping the God of all glory, or your mission strategy will fall flat and get all out of whack, and you'll quit when your plans get frustrated and when people reject the gospel and when friends betray you. Roots of endurance draw from the rich wells of God's grace and glory. Where is your joy? Is it in a football team or essential oils or exercise or money, your children, job success, your grandchildren, next project around the house? See, it's often easier for us to spread news about these matters than it is for us to spread the good news about God's grace because we're not finding our joy in Christ. We've lost the wonder of grace. We've traded God's glory for lesser things. Missions won't be a problem for a church that's truly happy in God's grace and glory. We commend to others only what we've come to truly enjoy ourselves. So may that be His grace and glory above all. Second, this passage informs our our message in global missions. Informs our message. When given the opportunity, Peter preaches the gospel. What is the gospel? What's the good news? God saving sinners through the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus Christ. Listen to it again from uh, chapter 10, verse 38, where he he begins with the life of Jesus. He says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Then he moves to the death of Jesus. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Then the resurrection. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And finally, the return of Jesus. He says, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. That's the gospel in a nutshell. What happens when people believe this message? Verse 43 tells us, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We know from Romans 5, everybody is born guilty without exception. To be forgiven of our sins, to be Cleansed of our guilt, people must hear this message and believe in Christ. So don't, there's a really practical point right here, don't buy into the inclusivism of our day. 
that says people are okay with God as long as they're sincere and devout in faith. Whatever faith means. Cornelius was a devout, God-fearing man. And yet he still needed to hear the gospel to be saved. That's what he says in verse 14. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. Acts 4.12 adds to the picture that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We could add Romans 10.17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Churches that are weak in evangelism and missions have normally been influenced by some form of inclusivism. The idea that people don't need to hear about Jesus in order to be saved. But we've got to preach the gospel or the nations won't be saved. There's not a person you'll see this week that will be saved apart from hearing the gospel. We've got to remember this. We can get distracted in the mission. I asked uh, some of our own missionaries and, and church planters how this distraction happens. Uh, one brother shared this, that, that we can get so focused on meeting physical needs, we subtly deceive ourselves into thinking that's enough. We're doing our job. We're embodying the gospel. We're, we're drilling wells and giving them claws and teaching them business skills. Good things. They may even address some suffering, but they don't address eternal suffering. The gospel must be preached as we do good to others because faith comes by hearing. Another missionary from Central Asia said, we develop friendships with the locals. But as time goes by, we don't want to lose those friendships by by preaching the gospel. You can imagine coming into a new place and finally befriending somebody. And that's the only guy you have in town who's your friend. We can fear losing that friendship by calling people to repent and follow Jesus and so... We can stay silent. But we've got to remember that friendships save nobody. God uses friendships in saving others, absolutely. But it's not the friendship that saves, but the gospel spoken in that friendship that saves. And what kind of friend doesn't care enough to speak to someone's greatest need for Christ? Another one wrote this, that we can sometimes convince ourselves... That by talking generally about God and morality and Jesus loves you and other vague things, that that we've shared the gospel. But without explicitly preaching the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and what those things imply for repentance and faith, we really haven't preached the gospel at all. These examples that that come from our folks on the field, they're not limited to, to them, to To those out there, they they sound a lot like some of our experiences too. So I would advise you just to to take notes as we continue to to go through the book of Acts and, and notice the gospel the apostles just continue to relentlessly announce. Notice the different ways that they announce it. 
Notice how Paul preaches to the Jews and, and then how he preaches to the Gentiles. The approach may differ, but the message remains the same. Christ and Him crucified and risen. The gospel saved. This is the message we must speak to the nations. Uh, ask our missionaries. They, they want to disciple you, even from afar. Ask our missionaries through, through emails uh, and, 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 and Skype uh, conversations, you know, how they're sharing the gospel. What's, what learn from them. Ask each other how you're sharing the gospel at work and, and at school and at exercise groups and with family members. Uh, ask for prayer in sharing the gospel. Report on occasions when you do share the gospel and celebrate its advance. Even, even when there's no immediate faith, celebrate together. God, Jesus' fame just went out when you announced the gospel. Third, this account with Cornelius teaches us some things about the manner we go about the mission. The manner. And I think one thing we need to see here is that we must be, we must be prayerful. We must be prayerful as we go. Notice uh, how God's mission advances to the Gentiles as Peter is praying in chapter 10, verse 9. This fits the pattern developed throughout Acts. God achieves his mission through prayer. Prayer is the means God uses to achieve his saving purposes among the nations. In this case, prayer was the means God used actually to transform Peter himself. God's transformation of us as individuals is part of that greater mission. It's, it's, when you're changed, you're going to be more effective in, in how you go about Mission. So Peter is praying and God changes him through the, the prayer. The reason some of us stay so inwardly look so so inward looking is that we're not praying. We're not seeking God's will in prayer, and therefore we remain unchanged, unmoved, fearful about this and that, dispassionate about reaching others for Christ. It's through prayer that we learn to say with Christ, not my will, but yours be done. And it's through prayer that God works His will to save people. I mean, even in some surprising ways. Peter's, Peter's just hungry, verse 10 says. He's hungry. He wants some supper. And he sits down and pray, ends up with a vision and Gentiles knocking on his door to, to hear the gospel. God moves and He, and he works when we pray. You have to wonder if God was like, there's this nice slab of bacon coming down the sheet as Peter's praying, you know. Rise and eat, Peter. He declared all foods clean. Rise, eat. We also must be spirit-led. Spirit-led. Did you notice the, the work of the Spirit in these, in these chapters? Verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 19. The Spirit said to Peter... Uh, chapter 11, verse 12. The Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Uh, chapter 10, verse 44. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard. Peter's guidance and the Gentiles getting saved, none of it could have happened without God's Spirit. So we must depend on God's Spirit to lead us. We don't, we don't want to just go through the motions of church. It's awful to go through the motions without the Spirit's leadership. There's a convicting passage in, in Isaiah 30, verse 1, 
Uh, I remember it clearly because I read it during a time when I was just making all kinds of decisions in parenting and at work, and, and, and that had nothing to do with the Spirit's guidance. They were, they were based on fear and personal preference. And then I read this one morning, Isaiah 30, verse 1. Oh, you stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. So I add sin to sin when I don't follow the Spirit. We can't do the work of God apart from the Spirit of God. We need His leadership. How do you discern the Spirit's leadership? Well, by knowing the written Word, Scripture, and the living Word, Jesus Christ. You see, Peter doesn't make these decisions based simply on subjective experiences. Notice that he discerns everything by God's objective revelation in Word and, and in Scripture and in Christ. Uh, when he preaches in chapter 10, verse 43, he appeals to all the prophets. To all the prophets. This is how he can extend salvation to the Gentiles. Because all the prophets said so. Uh, when he retells the story of Cornelius, notice what he says in chapter 11, verse 16. I remembered the word of the Lord. And he's talking about the, the word of the Lord Jesus. who told him that John was going to baptize with water, but Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. So we discern the Spirit's direction by the written word and knowing the living word. And, and the idea is, is you, you know them, you're saturated with the Bible, you know Jesus Christ, you're walking with Him, and decisions become secondhand, like, hey, three Gentiles are knocking on my door, and I've got the prophets, and I know Jesus said this, I'm going to go answer the door. I'm going to do what they say, and I'm going to look for ways to share Christ. That's how it goes. You, maybe you're praying for a lost friend. And you go out and play tennis together. You're done with tennis. And he stops you in the parking lot and says, Hey, I've just been really struggling with, with something. I need to, need to talk to you about it. And that's your cue. Like, you don't say, Well, I've got to get home. It's opportunity. Door is opening to, to share Christ. Uh, finally, our manner must be urgent. Urgent. Verse 42 says that God appointed Jesus to judge the living and the dead, meaning everybody. Nobody will escape judgment day when he comes. Either your sins stand forgiven in Christ and you will experience everlasting joy or you will remain in your sins and experience everlasting pain. Our mission is urgent because judgment day is coming. Our mission is urgent because life is also short. People are dying. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So let's not abuse the days God has given us. Life is short. This, this age is passing away. Jesus is coming back. The mission is urgent. That doesn't mean we freak out and we don't sleep well and we forsake rest and long-term discipleship. 
But it will mean that we think more strategically about the days God has given us and how we can be used in the onward march of the gospel to all nations. And that begins right here where we live, work, and play. And that leads to one final takeaway from, from chapters uh, 10 and 11. And that is our movement in the mission. Our movement in the mission. Some churches have the impression that our mission is come and see. Come and see our church. Come and see our preacher. Come and see our kids' playground area. Come and see and experience our services. The mindset sometimes isn't to share the gospel with people outside the church, but invite people to church where the preacher shares the gospel. But the New Testament strikes a different note. The mission of the church isn't come and see. It's go and tell. It's go and tell. Matthew 28, verse 19, Go and make disciples of all the nations. The movement of the church is outward. It's, it's pushing into new regions, crossing cultures to new peoples. This outward movement of the church becomes clear in the account with Cornelius. God shows no partiality. He's pursuing people from all nations. He's trying to get Peter and the church on board. Come on, guys. Can't you see I'm going to flood the earth with the knowledge of my glory? Starting right here. Here's this man, Cornelius. Let's go. Let's get on board. Get over yourself. Get over your pride. Get over your prejudice. Come on. For Peter, get on, for Peter to get on board, some things in him have to die. So, you know, he thought... Gentiles were unclean. That was part of the culture he breathed. the culture he grew up in as a, as a Jew. What kinds of people do you think are unclean? The culture that you grew up in that made judgments. I don't know about you. I had names that were passed down from family members and friends of these kinds of people that live in this area of the city and these kinds of people that live over here. God had to come in and kill Peter's pride. God had to kill Peter's cultural prejudice. Pride and prejudice are enemies of the gospel and they don't reflect the character of God. So what kinds of ethnic pride or economic pride or cultural prejudices does God need to kill in us? What barriers are we not crossing to spread joy in God's grace? What people might we be judging and not going to? Because, let's face it, they don't like dogs and they don't eat bacon. What has more sway over who we associate with from day to day? The good news or Fox News? The opportunity to reach the nations in Fort Worth is pretty remarkable. Again, when the Bible says nations, it's not talking about nation states with political lines on on a map. It's talking about ethnicities, people groups, peoples who are defined by a shared culture and and language. According to to peoplegroups.org, there are 11,741 peoples worldwide. 
for mission strategy, organizations like the IMB, which we support, put just over 7,000 of those people groups into a category known as as unreached, which basically means there's less than 2% of evangelical witness. 3,178 remain unengaged, which is way worse. Not only are they lost, but no Christians are looking for them. Mostly, they live in North Africa, in the Middle East, and Asia. And there are obvious challenges to reaching them, of course. Isolated regions, for example, that are not easy to travel to. Government hostility to outsiders coming in, and so on. But here's the remarkable opportunity we have. God has brought many of these unreached, unengaged people groups here. And it's not just happening in DFW. It's, it's happening in Minneapolis and in Houston and in, in Illinois and, and places like this. Big metropolitan areas. Over the last three years, we've seen many refugees settle in Fort Worth from Myanmar, Iraq, Congo, Somalia, and Syria. At various locations in the area, I sit down with people from El Salvador, Nigeria, Serbia, Turkey, Vietnam, and the Philippines. A man from Croatia lives down our street. TCU has 650 students from over 90 different countries. Almost 11% of the students at UT Arlington are internationals. One in every 10 students. Normandale Baptist Church, just just up the road here, started hosting Swahili worship services. God has brought the nations to our doorsteps, literally. So what are some steps we can take to reach them? I'm not saying to ignore the people who may already share your ethnicity and culture. I'm simply saying that some of our neighbors belong to people groups who have no access to the gospel where they are and God intends for them to sing his praise according to Revelation 5.9. Moreover, Jesus commissioned us to make disciples of all the nations, not just the ones we're comfortable with. And so what can we do? Start with worship. Who are you worshiping? What God are you worshiping? If we're worshiping the true God, whom we've seen in chapters 10 and 11, shows no partiality, no favoritism. If we're worshiping the God who promises to flood the earth with his glory, according to Habakkuk 2.14, what does that mean for us? If we're worshiping him... We will become like Him. We become what we worship. We will become like Him. His his passion and His loves and His drive will become ours. And His passion is to save all the nations. So that should be our passion. And that will happen when we are worshiping Him and seeing Him for who He really is. I'd start there. Start with worship. Such worship will then lead us to repent from any form of ethnic pride or cultural prejudice. You will encounter ethnic and cultural differences 
in the mission. And some of them may offend you or annoy you or disgust you because you think your way is better and your food tastes better and your, more, your way is more efficient. Some of them may scare you because of the stereotypes that you hold and have been taught. And some of them will make you not want to live next door to them. But who are we to make such judgments? What does, what does that convey about the God we worship? He's not, he's not just the God for middle class Americans. He is Lord of all. That's what Peter said in chapter 10, verse 36. He is Lord of all. Peoples. We must repent from any attitude or fear or stereotype or favoritism that would keep us from taking the gospel outward. Peter's Jewish culture set up barriers to the gospel, and God was pleased to tear them down for his glory. So may God tear down ours too as we humble ourselves before him and repent. Worship God, repent, and then open your eyes. Open your eyes. Many of us you know, don't, don't have to book international flights to reach the nations. We simply need to look around. That's what Jesus you know, had to tell his proud Jewish disciples in John 4. That, you know, they, John, John tells us that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. No dealings. They were, they were filth to the Jews. And here he is. They come back from buying a... Snack pack back in the city, and like, why is Jesus talking with his Samaritan? She's a woman on top of that. And here, this Samaritan has, woman has gone back to her village. They're all coming out to, to meet Jesus. The disciples are like, what's, what's the big deal? And what does Jesus tell them? Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Who's the fields there? It's the Samaritans. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jew. You see, there's never a harvest problem for Jesus. There's always a worker problem. Worker problem. We got a problem. We need new eyes. The disciples need new eyes. So look around you. What people has, has God already placed in your life? What, what others could, could you go find? Find out where people gather and, 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 they, and they play. What restaurants are in town run by, by internationals? Frequent stores or shops that draw internationals. Hit the nails salon, ladies. Men, you stay away from the nails salon. We got other issues to talk about. Teach an ESL class. Uh, universities have uh, English exchange partnerships where international students just want to sit down with an English-speaking person and hear you talk. And it helps them with, with their English. It's a perfect doorway for the gospel. Spend an hour a week meeting with somebody, a, st- a student in the area. 
There are soccer leagues in the area teeming with internationals who play real football. Or easiest of all, show hospitality. That's, that's easiest of all. Just invite them into your home. When you bump into them, you ask them where they're from, invite them over. Invite them, invite them over for the meal and share Christ over some Texas home cooking. Lastly, prepare to become all things to all men. Prepare to become all things to all men in order that you might save some. It's straight out of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That's the way Paul went about his, his mission. Where he needed to flex and not compromise the gospel, whether it was to Jews or to Gentiles, he flexed. So if a Muslim comes to dinner, don't serve pork. You flex. If your neighbor from Mexico serves manudo, eat it to the glory of God. Yeah. If you have to move into a neighborhood to build trust with the people you're trying to reach, do it. Learn their language and worldview. Work hard to communicate effectively. Don't just think, well, I'm 45 now. I, can't, I don't have time to learn the language. Learn the language. We've got all kinds of online helps now. Learn how to communicate effectively, even if they do know English. You meet an Indian guy, don't come in and say, oh, you must be born again. Because he will turn around and tell you, oh, yes, I have been born again many times. Reincarnation is what they think When you say born again, learn them and what's going on in their worldview so you know how to explain something like new birth to them. They're tired of being born again. So learn them, know them, get become all things to all men in order that you might save some. The point is this, don't require lost people to come and find you inside your culture. We're commissioned to take the gospel to them in theirs. That's the whole point. And we have a problem with that as Americans. Our culture, a lot of times, especially Texas culture, is they need to become like us. But Jesus is teaching Christians... No, you take the gospel to them. You meet them where they're at. Maybe God has you at a university right now. Maybe you don't want to be at university right now. But maybe he's got you there to befriend internationals and send them home with more than just an education, but with salvation. Maybe you're working at a company with engineers from other nations, and God has put you in their lives, not just to build a company, but to build His kingdom. Maybe you, you've, you've already retired, and God has given you all kinds of, of time. You know, how are you going to spend it to spread the gospel to all nations? Hey, you even get senior citizen discounts and travel. Like, go encourage our missionaries, meet them. How will you spread the gospel to the nations in retirement? We, we have a family in Southeast Asia right now. 
They're making tea as a business platform to stay in their country. And if you did, that platform doesn't make a certain amount of money every year, you're going home because you can't be legitimate. But they're, they're there, and they need help running this business. They need a businessman. You don't have to, you don't have to even move there. They, they just need someone who can help them improve sales and think through distribution and, and, and sort out finances and just give them input and so forth. So if you're one of those entrepreneurial men or man or woman, come see me after service, and we're going to set a point, uh, Skype appointment with them very soon. So these are some examples about how you can be involved in the mission. Some will work for some of you, and some of them won't. The point is, pray, seek the Lord, repent, find your place in the mission to all nations, and do it with all the might God gives you. And then trust Him to spread His grace for worldwide worship.